This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. George Stevens Jr. has penned a must-read autobiography called My Place in the Sun, Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood in Washington. He joined me for over an hour to discuss his favorite memories, from helping his father make Hollywood classics like A Place in the Sun, Shane, and Giant, to making his own history in Washington, D.C. by creating both the American Film Institute and the Kennedy Center Honors. George Stevens Jr., hey, thank you so much for joining us on WTOP again. Jason, it's a great pleasure. Now, we spoke a a couple years back when PBS was doing a special. I came to your office, uh, Children of Giant, I think it was, Um, and it was a great conversation, and uh, we invite everyone to go check that out. In, in the archives, uh, you, you were going through all of your conversations with Capra and Hitchcock and Billy Wilder that you did in your book. So everyone, check that out. You know, I was when I heard you were uh, proposing an interview, I just remembered how, how well we did the last time. And so I've been looking forward to this. Oh, are you kidding me? You and your dad have been like such an inspiration to me and my career. Like almost 20 years ago, I was an intern at the Baltimore Sun. And uh, I don't know if you remember Michael Srego was the movie critic up there. He yes. assigned me to, he assigned me to do a Liz Taylor tribute because they thought she was you know going to pass and she lived a while. But uh, that was when I discovered A Place in the Sun and Giant. I went home pulling clips. I was like, oh, my God. Then I found out his son, you, ran the AFI, printed off all the best lists, all the TV countdowns, all that stuff. Kennedy Center honors, the whole deal. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for all the influence on my life. Thank you, Jason. What do you say in the book? Flattery's okay as long as you don't inhale. Yeah, oh, you're a good reader. My God. (laughs) The reason we're talking today is because you have written an amazing, amazing autobiography. It's called My Place in the Sun, uh, Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood in Washington. Man, I couldn't get enough of it. I wanted to keep reading it. So without further ado, this is like 90 years in the making. Uh, When did you sit down and say, I got to actually put this on paper? (laughs) I, 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 I knew kind of along the road that I would do this one day. And I kept notes and uh, calendars and I made an outline of it maybe about eight years ago. And then I started to write a couple of years later and then COVID sentenced me to finish the book <laughs> because <laughs> I had this time and it was a wonderful and, and it enabled me to spend the time on it, you know, because you know, the care you take and the refinements you make are what make a book work, uh, you know, and I you'd appreciate your response. But the most pleasing thing t- to me is for readers to say that I, d- I read every page and I kind of was saving it because I didn't want it to finish. Uh, and that was really a result of me having the time to give it the attention to detail that it needed 
Oh, well, you gave the attention to detail. And I think like what you're saying about everyone wanted to savor it. Uh, you talk so much about respect for the audience. And, you know, it's it's broken up in these little, you know, chapters. It just moves right along that you get to the end of a chapter and you say, wow, and then I'm on to the next one. I'm on to the next one. And it's like little, I don't want to call them bite-sized morsels, but in a way it's so smartly structured uh, the way the way that you kind of divide it up like that. Talk about, were you trying to respect the audience of readers like, you know, you and your father did on screen as well? Absolutely. Just that idea of respect for the audience. You know, in film, my father used to talk about you know, the, the studios in, in that golden age used to say that the audience has the mentality of 14-year-olds. <laughs> my father felt different, very differently about it. He respected the audience <clears throat> and he, 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 he wanted to leave something for the audience to do. You know, not put it all out there in front of you. Let your contribution take place. And I felt the same way with this book. Um, I, I didn't want to spoon it all out there. I wanted to leave something for the audience to bring to it. It's a yeah, it's a fine line you're talking about. And your dad and a lot of those classic era movie makers and yourself. It's it's like a there's a fine line between, you know, preaching to an audience, leaving a little bit to them, but at the same time, you're not on the other extreme being so out there, you know, ambiguous that um readers can't follow along. But I think you're you and your dad always thread the needle perfectly. So thank you. Um, well, speaking of which, it's, it's you know, I know we've talked about your dad mostly the last interview, and this one's going to be most about you, but it's impossible to write your story without your dad. So let's kind of move through chronologically, if we can, a little bit before even your father. I love how you open and close sort of with the grandparents, but how, how important was it to include like the lineage as well to tee it all up? Well, I, I am uh, fourth, generation, fourth generation and my son, Michael, was fifth generation. My great grandmother was born at the time, end of the gold rush in San Francisco and became an actress and became a very distinguished actress. She was the youngest Ophelia to Edwin Booth's Hamlet. Edwin Booth being the greatest Hamlet in American history who had the disadvantage of his brother being John Wilkes Booth who assassinated Abraham Lincoln. So crazy. But Georgia Woodthorpe had a daughter, Georgie Cooper, actress, who married, married an actor, Lander Stevens, and my father was one of their two sons. Um, so Georgia Woodthorpe started five generations in show business for the Stevens family. Um, and, you know, my father was a wonderful influence. This is not a story of a son with fa father troubles. Right. Um, uh, but, uh, I, and I, so I was, I grew up around a filmmaker. We were not in the, in Beverly Hills and all of the Hollywood action, but I had a 16 millimeter, he had a 16 millimeter projector. And I remember when I was 11 or 12, threading up Gunga Dean, yeah. this projector and running it. And I so loved that film the humor, the adventure, and the regimental beastie Gunga Din, the water boy who wanted to be in the regiment. Uh, you know, it was a touching story, and it was kind of my first influence. You mentioned Gunga Dean. There's a distinct dividing line uh, between your father's post-war work and his pre-war work. Um, those pre-war films are just some of the most delightful, fun, lighthearted, adventurous or romantic or musicals. You know what I mean? You get 
uh, you know, Alice Adams, or you get Swing Time, which is probably the best of the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers pictures, Gunga Dean, uh, Penny Serenade, Woman of the Year, the Hepburn Tracy uh, rom-com uh, series kicking off that. So yeah, talk about that pre-war period, your experience watching those as a kid, thinking my dad makes some of the most fun movies ever. <laughs> no. Yes, no, no, it was, I, I was not preoccupied with movies, but I was very interested in what he was doing. And you know, the, the the real continuing line between those films and the post-war films is a kind of humanity. Yeah. You know, he, he didn't like that screwball comedy term. Right. He learned from Laurel and Hardy. He was their cameraman when right. he was 24, that, that comedy could be graceful and human. And he always felt that comedy came out of believable characters. I think that's what makes uh, Swing Time the best of the Astaire Rogers pictures. There, there's a deeper characterization of the two people. And and he had this, uh, and Gunga Dean, you know, he, he sacrifices his life for the regiment. And at the end of the picture, the bagpipes are playing and he's being buried. And the commandant says, yeah. you're a better man than I am, Gunga Dean. You know, so <laughs> yeah. it, it's, it's thought of as a lighthearted movie but it had a depth to it, you know, and certainly as a young person, it touched me. Oh, yeah, you're so right. They, they, they're they seen, I guess, on the, they seem like on the surface fun, you know, lighthearted movies, but there was like a social consciousness and a humanity, a depth to it that was that was starting that your father was really mastering that would really break out later. Um, but yeah, those early movies are they're just they're such they're just such a delight. And I love the story that you have in the book about the Oscars and you say, Dad, we was robbed when you lost yeah. the Casablanca. <laughs> no, that was it was in 1943, four. My mother and I went to the Oscars because dad was nominated. Mm -hmm. He was overseas at war. Right. And we sat down with all the actress nominees, Jean Arthur and Jennifer Jones and Claudette Colbert. And when one of the other pictures would win for art direction, they'd all applaud nicely to one another. Yeah. And then <laughs> when the guy, guy opens the envelope and says, Casablanca, <laughs> in the silence before the applause, I said, we was robbed. And <laughs> these ladies, these ladies, these actresses were so amused. <laughs> oh, that's so great. Yeah. From the mouths of babes, right? You were just a kid. You were young at that time. <laughs> that um, but that's a perfect transition because, you know, yes, Casablanca was, you know, and, and that you're, we're talking about sort of the wartime and your your father was one of the the famous, you know, they, they did a great documentary. What is it? Five came back. Um yeah. Who was it? It was it was your dad, Capra, Weiler, Ford and John Houston, Houston, Houston. Um, and to me, that's they, those five made like my favorite movies of all time. Add them all up. You can't top it. Sorry, everyone can keep trying, but you're never going to top that. But anyway, uh, talk about how the war itself. Few people probably don't really realize that your dad was on the D-Day boats and captured some of the first color footage of that and the liberation of France and all the way to the Holocaust, at, at the concentration camps at Dachau. I mean, do you take great pride that your father literally captured history in real time for the rest of I mean, it's at the Holocaust Museum now, the, the footage of the DACA. I mean, do you think, do you take pride that your father was literally on the doorstep of history, capturing it for all of us? Well, I take pride that he was uh, well beyond draft age. <laughs> yeah. And had just was, had this, had risen to the top of Hollywood directors. Yeah. And making two or three pictures a year. And 
he watched Lini Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will mm-hmm. one night in a Columbia Pictures screening room. Riefenstahl made these uh, epic films about Hitler and the Third Reich. Right. Nazi and, propaganda uh, pictures, yeah. Yeah, and that night he decided he couldn't stay on the sidelines and he had to apply his talents and he got a commission and Eisenhower put him in charge of uh, photographing the invasion. And, and he rode across Europe in a Jeep, you know, with a, a pistol on his wow. hip. And um, uh, so, yes, I'm very proud of that, that he, that he knew what the right thing to do was. Yeah. Yeah. And he was not only on the right side of history, but he was on the right side of history with a camera there for the rest of us. It, it just blo- yeah. it blows me away, the, the life that, that he lived. Um, and then when he comes back, then the movies get much more serious. And to me, it's where he makes like his all time masterpieces, <laughs> like all in a row. We can go through them pretty quickly. But I mean, A Place in the Sun, I love that transition he does from like the little alarm clock in the window, you know, the, the dissolve from the alarm clock from yeah. night to day. Um, it, it's just, it, it is just like massive. And then the soft, obviously the soft focus, you know, embraces that, that Clifton Taylor do, but just talk about why, why do you think it's still a, a masterpiece? I mean, I think it's one of the greatest movies ever made. It's the title of your book in a way. <laughs> Mike, Mike Nichols, who had no film experience, uh, his first film was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, a wonderful picture. And yeah. people said, well, how, you've never been on a soundstage. He said, I watched A Place in the Sun 150 times. That's all it takes. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it is. It's it's one of the, you know, great ones. Um, I had finished my senior year and was going to college and didn't have a summer job. And he said, you can help me. And he gave me two assignments. <laughs> one was to break down Theodore Dreiser's An American Tragedy. Mm-hmm. Just all the elements in part one and part two into two notebooks. He was about to write the screenplay of A Place in the Sun based on Dreiser's American Tragedy. And the other was to read the books and scripts that Paramount, where he was based, sent over to, for him to read. And there were a lot of treacly love stories that were very taxing to a 17-year-old on long summer days. But one day I picked up a book off the pile, read it in the afternoon, went to see my father at night. He was in bed reading. And I walked in and I said, Dad, this is a great story. I think you ought to read it. And he said, well, why don't you tell me the story? So I found myself pacing around his bedroom, trying to reconstruct and make interesting the story of Shane. <laughs> and, you know, but I now look back and I realize he was giving me an opportunity to find out whether I had any interest or and or any aptitude for his profession. Right. But the next summer I was in Jackson Hole working on my first movie, Shane. That's I love I absolutely love those stories. Is it true that, you know, we're talking like, you know, post-war, you know, movies are getting a little more real in, in their violence and stuff, but didn't they like rig rig some of the actors and like yank them backwards, like in the famous um, Jack Palance shooting? That's that's absolutely true. Um, that the, the the famous scene where Jack Palance shoots down the little southern, yeah, uh, you know, farmer. Um, his dad made that, he he watered that street and it wasn't wet enough, <laughs> so we didn't shoot on Saturday. 
sent everybody home to water the streets some more, came back on Sunday. So when Elisha Cook Jr. playing Stonewall Tory walks toward the saloon with Palance yeah. standing on the deck there, uh, he's slipping and sloshing in the mud and being proud that he's gonna stand up to this man. But they had taken his shirt off and put a, 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 a kind of a girdle on that had three wires coming out of the back of it and then clothed him, buried a mattress in the mud on the street. <laughs> and instead of had, you know, dad had come back from the war and he'd seen what a 45 could do to another human being. And he'd come back and see movies and he'd see people get shot and grab their chest and then get up and yeah. shoot again. And so this, when he shot him, he flew back into that mud. And Sam Peckinpah commented on it and said, after Elisha Cook fell in the mud, or was yanked into the mud, uh, the gunplay in movies changed. And my father wanted, you know, it's so such a contemporary idea. He wanted to show the power and the danger of a weapon, of a pistol and a lesson we are still trying to learn today. Uh, it That is such a great point and so well said, because yeah, before that, a lot of the gangster movies, it was like pew, 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 or even Westerns. It was, you know, just a lot of, you know, almost silly gunplay. And this one, you know, because of his war experience, you see what a, one gunshot actually does. And, and it builds to it, right? It's Alan Ladd riding in on the frontier, chopping the trees, so much about the frontier and the land struggle. But then when the, the gunfire actually matters, like it's not a movie, a shoot 'em up movie. Every shot in that movie is, you're reminded, oh, this is what a, a, a gun will do to a person. He said, for this movie, he says, a gunshot is a Holocaust. Wow. And think of the Holocausts that are happening week after week in this yeah. country. Oh, that that's such such a such a great point. Such a great point. Uh everyone, you know, if if you've seen if you've never seen Shane younger listeners, you know, even if you've only seen, you know, Palance and City Slickers win the Oscar, go back and why he's so scary in this and and let young Brandon DeWilde, I always think of you and your your dad, uh, you know, I'm glad that you use that later in the documentary about, you know, Shane come back. It's almost like you saying, "Dad, come back." Oh, it's just uh. Brilliant. Oh, and also the little tidbit you had in here about um, when you were restoring Shane and you were like, you'd seen it so many times that you were like, I missed something's wrong in the background. It was the, the bubbling creek sound. You Your ear heard that the bubbling creek wasn't in there. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it had gotten washed away in the, in, in, by the sound, by the, in, in a retro, re reconstruction of the movie. Yeah. You know, somebody just let that river go away. Well, I'm glad you kept it in there. You you knew the movie in and out and could tell. Well, I mean, um, my my personal favorite probably in his most epic, and he won Best Director for this again. I guess he had won previously for A Place in the Sun, right? Yeah. Um, but he's won again for for Giant. And to me, it should that or The Searchers should have won Best Picture that year. I'm sorry, 1956. But um, Giant to me, um, I want to hear what you think about it. But for me, it rivals. No, it's better than Gone with the Wind because it has that epic scope and spectacle. But it's more socially conscious on the right side of history, as we keep saying. You know what I mean? Like Gone with the Wind is no doubt about it, one of the most lavish, important productions of the first half of the 20th century. But in hindsight, there, you know, it's problematic and it's sort of, you know, nostalgia for the antebellum South. But with Giant, it's the opposite. It's ahead of its time. It is predating I Have a Dream speech. It is predating 
To Kill a Mockingbird and all those other ones. It it really was the first one that dealt with race relations, and in this case, Latinos down on the border. Um, up, talk about the importance of your dad being on the right side of the history of that, all the way up into the final shot, right, with the the, the two babies in in the the playpen. One one a baby of color, one a white baby, and even the animals behind them are a black sheep and a white sheep. <laughs> your dad always did. But yeah, talk about how he was ahead of his time uh, socially with that movie. You know, he you know he did he you know it's again he understood the human condition. And he found in Edna Ferber's wonderful novel, which it's based on, mm -hmm. uh, but he, he, he found the themes. And important theme that film is the independent woman. You know, there were not a lot of those in movies in that day. And she is the one, uh, Rock Hudson as Big Benedict is the man in charge, but she's the one who cares about the, uh, the Latinos the Hispanics in the, you know, in the village, and then, and she's pressing for all those themes in the right way, uh, and uh, then of course addressing uh, the condition which continues to trouble us today mm -hmm. is the equity for uh, Hispanic Americans. Uh, you know that, that what happens with Gone with the Wind. It's got all of the the production, but it, it really didn't have, have this foresight about the the truth. Yeah, and Giant uh, is about the truth as well as uh, you know. We restored it and had a great premiere last April at the Turner Classic Movies Festival. Steven Spielberg and I introduced it. Uh, he was he initiated. He called me and said it's a masterpiece. We should totally. do this restoration. Uh, and I said to the people in the Grumman's Chinese audience, now an IMAX theater with a huge screen, uh, I said, this film was first shown, premiered at this theater 65 years ago. You're watching a film that's 65 years old, runs three hours and 20 minutes. And to see it in our audience with it on the IMAX screen, it just gives you such an understanding of the test of time in terms of uh, movies. It totally stands the test of time. And it struck me, I was out covering the Oscars a couple years ago and, you know, the red carpet and all that, um, but like staggered across the street to like a little diner and they had they had Giant playing on a, a screen in the back oh. and no sound on it. I think it was the scene with the wedding where where um, oh. Liz Taylor and Rock Hudson like reunite. It's so all done in their faces that I, I was watching on a screen in a diner. I mean, I'd seen it a million times, but like you can follow the story. And to me, that's respect for the audience and test of time right there. Visual yeah. storytelling. Yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. And yeah. I'm so thank you for bringing up that point about the it, it's such a deeply feminist movie. I mean, we talk about I, I teed it up as saying, you know, it's about race relations. And of course it is. Angel, Angel Abergon, you know, the burial and all that stuff. Um, but it Liz Taylor's character in that, it is such a deeply feminist movie. It's so ahead of its time on so many fronts, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And 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 at the end when Rock gets when Vic Benedict is Rock Hudson gets in that terrible that fight in the diner when yeah. his when his little grandson, when the big beefy guy who runs the diner calls his little grandson a papoose, Rock Hudson at, at age 60 decides to fight this guy. Yeah. It's this titanic, <laughs> maybe the best <laughs> fist fight ever in movies. Yeah. He and Rock ends up get, taking a punch and falling on the floor, 
with salad all over him. <laughs> sign, we reserve the right, and the guy throws the sign, we reserve the right to refuse service to anybody. Yeah. And then in the closing scene, Elizabeth says, uh, you finally are my hero. You know. Yeah. He, and 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 in that moment, the title is realized, right? It's yeah. not a it's not a giant spectacle or a giant ranch or James Dean at a giant banquet or any rest in peace, any of that. It's about a giant human being, a giant character, you know. Yeah. Um, and that's what your father had. Um, well, wow. Uh, speaking of which, I guess then uh, before we move on, I want to get to all your DC stuff. There's so much, but real quick, the Diary of Anne Frank. We mentioned the Holocaust and liberating Dachau yeah. and all that stuff. Um. I never realized it's a great movie. I never realized that you, sir, actually, you know, led like a second crew and shot some pickup footage. I remind tell our listeners real quick about your involvement in that. Uh, Dad got behind schedule as he often did, but he'd never give up the shooting of main scenes in the film. Yeah. And he asked me to go to uh, Amsterdam and direct all of the ex external scenes that he was going to be shooting around the Anne Frank house. Yeah. Uh, and I had the wonderful cinematographer, Jack Cardiff, uh, holding my hand. So I was in very good position. <laughs> yeah, so that was wonderful. And just, you know, again, the story, that girl's story is so important. And the idea that this child from the ages of 12 to 14 was in hiding and wrote this remarkable diary just very quickly. My father and I went to Amsterdam to see Otto Frank, her father, who had come back from Auschwitz. Uh, and we sat in a little office he had, and he went to, went to a filing cabinet, pulled it open, took something out wrapped in cloth and opened it in front of us. And it was her diary mm -hmm. with all of the pictures she'd cut out, you know, and we realized that, you know, I don't know whether it's 30 million or 40 million readers have uh, engaged with this book, but that it has, you know, Hitler's voice fell still and this voice, you know, so for us to be able to uh, tell that story um, was, uh, you know, for us, very important. <clears throat> that was one of the most touching stories in the book. And I got goosebumps reading it and I got goosebumps when you just said it again that you and your dad actually went and held the diary of Anne Frank with her father there in the room. And you decided that we're going to share this story with the world on screen. Um, ah, that is, you've lived a life. And there is a picture in the book of me holding the diary and of us in the hiding place yeah. with Otto Frank, where he took us and showed us where they spent those years. Oh, I, I, I love all the pictures in the book. It really, it really, it shows that you, you were there. You were actually there. Um, well, really quick. Um, last time you and I spoke, uh, you said for me to watch one movie of your dad's that I hadn't seen at the time. And it was the greatest story ever told the story of Jesus. And you said, you know, I think that is like an underrated, uh, masterpiece of my dad's. And I was like, you know what? I should probably, I should finally watch that. And I did. And you are right. Of course. <laughs> Talk about, all right, so talk about why your dad's staging of the tale of Jesus was so groundbreaking in not only casting, you know, John Wayne as the centurion or, you know, the big names, but, you know, 
to me, it's Sidney Poitier being cast as the the man from the crowd, the stranger helping carry the cross for Jesus to the to the end. Um, talk about how big of a moment that was, and you convincing Sidney to do that part. Well, yes, you know, again, it's back back to my father. He's making this film, and he's not thinking of how these stories have been told in the past, but he's thinking about how they should be told now and for the future. Yeah, and this was very early in the beginning to re recognize and involve more African-Americans in American movies. Yeah. We agreed uh, that Sidney Poitier should play the role of Simon, si Simon of Cyrene, who's usually played by a white character. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and he's the one who helps Sidney, who helps Jesus on the path to the crucifixion. Um, and, and I was, uh, uh, dad asked me to go talk to Sydney. So I flew to New York and met Sydney at lunch. Um, and Sydney is such a prepossessing man. Uh, I was, uh, I was 27 or eight and he was in his early thirties. And, uh, and I we, actually, we'd had a drawing made of Sydney, how, how this character would appear in the movie. And uh, I had it in a five <laughs> beside me, and I told the story of what the character did, and 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 I said my father would be greatly appreciative if you would consider playing this role, and I took out this and showed this illustration, and Sydney was silent. Sydney was always took his time, and and he said to me, he said, I would be honored. To work with your father and bring this role to life wow. and it was the beginning of a 50-year friendship oh yes you know for making other movies with him tv series and plays and all kinds of stuff it's incredible um thank you for for going through all of your father's movies um i know this autobiography is about you but it really is like for the first half about you and your father and how it's so intertwined like you were if people didn't realize george stevens jr was such a big part uh behind the scenes of george stevens some of his greatest greatest works and you're what a learning tree to sit under i mean incredible um but that that really brings us to um the moment where you kind of you get an offer you can't refuse where you have to strike out on on your own on the completely other side of the country so um, most sons of famous directors could just take the easy road. They would stay in Hollywood, right? And just, you know, start doing film career. But um, you get offered to go to Washington. Mr. Stevens goes to Washington um, uh, to work at USIA um, with um, Edward R. Murrow, which, you know, obviously they they have awards in our, in my business, the awards named after the guy. Um, but yeah, uh, talk about that offer and the grace of, of your dad to say, you know, son, I, I think you better really consider this. <laughs> How hard of a decision was that for you? Well, yeah, because I, I would have been, uh, I was directing Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Peter yeah. Gunn. I was a young director uh, and working with my father on the Diary of Anne Frank. I used to joke that I think that what I'm, what's going on here is I'm going to spend my life working to become the second best film director in my family. Right. Uh, and, but then Murrow appeared um, with The New Frontier and John Kennedy, and he offered me this position. And I said to him, I really can't do it because we're starting the greatest story ever told. And after the Diary of Anne Frank, I'm like my father's partner, junior partner. And I just couldn't leave him. And 
Murrow, you know, said, I understand, uh, come see me if you're in Washington. And then uh, a couple of days later, I'm at the studio with dad and I tell him this and he stopped walking. We were going to lunch and he looked at me and he said, I think you may have to do it. You know, he understood my interest, you know, and it was a decision that so broadened my career. Um, and being brought into the Kennedy years, meeting President Kennedy, working for him and around him um, and under Murrow. My father, Murrow and John F. Kennedy were three influences at a, just as I turned 30. Um, which is a pretty good trifecta. Um, and it, and it you know, transformed my life. It opened all sorts of other doors, including meeting my extraordinary wife, Elizabeth. And uh, yeah, you said you met her kind of like a scene out of a, out of giant, you know, someone comes it, to the Maryland DC area and really in love. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, yes. And it, you know, we, and that, Making films for USIA, uh, they nicely call it the golden era of USIA filmmaking. We brought all sorts of young, really talented directors to make the films at USIA. And uh, so it was a very satisfying experience. Absolutely. I, I just to say about, about President Kennedy, um, he really was such an inspiring figure, you know, and the humor was so wonderful and he was, you know, in such a way. But, and I was very taken by, you know, his language and the quotes that he would use and the things he would say. And one of them was, he was very fond of referring to the ancient Greek definition of happiness. The fullest use of one's powers along lines of excellence. And I heard that and I wrote it down. Yeah. And then I realized that is the opportunity that he and Murrow gave me. You know, yeah. at 30, I am kind of running a studio making all of these films with young filmmakers that are serving a purpose around the world. Yeah. And it, and it just stuck with me. And I've always thought of that definition of happiness. I love the definition of happiness quote from JFK. I also love the JFK quote you put in there where I guess from Archimedes originally, but it was give me a place to stand and I will move the world. And that's, that's exactly. that was kind of what you said. You 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 said give me a place and you did move move the world. I'm Bradley Trainer and I'm Don McLean. We have a podcast called Blinded by the Item. A blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out. It's a guessing game and you can play along. The item might be like this A-list star carries a Birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out. Pretty sure that's J-Lo. And P.S. The person behind all of this is Chris Jenner, LLC. We drop a new episode every weekday so the fun never ends. Blinded by the Item. Listen wherever you get podcasts and watch us on the Blinded by the Item YouTube channel. Well, I love how you said that um, you and your father stopped smoking the same exact day um, when JFK sadly was um, was assassinated and never picked it up again. Murrow, of course, you know, passed away of cancer and all that stuff. Um, talk about how that era was such an era of possibility. Uh, you were saying Kennedy's words and inspirational lines, and you know, there's some great letters from Jackie in the book and everything. Talk about how the loss of not only JFK, but then MLK and, you know, 
Bobby's the one that has to break the news, and that's the only city that didn't burn. So you had JFK, MLK, Malcolm X as well, by the way. And then finally, RFK, when Bobby gets killed too, I mean, was that just a, that was like a triple, quadruple gut punch that, I mean, did the cause ever recover? The hopes and dreams, it launched a lot of stuff, but at the same time, it was it was just extinguished and, and just sort of the bittersweet nature of that time. Oh my God. I mean, that, you know, just unimaginable that, that the first tragedy, which, you know, argue, arguably one of the great tragedies in American history, the, mm-hmm. the shocking assassination of John F. Kennedy. And then five, year la- five years later, when we think we're on the road back, and I, in a way, I, I say that I think Bobby's murder was even more consequential mm. because Bobby, I really believe, would have been elected president. Yeah. And he, he had these tremendous gifts of leadership. And I think the working class, the young people, the African-Americans, I think he just could have pulled, up, pulled that together, you know, and, and instead we got Nixon. Uh, so, uh, but to, to, to go back to John Kennedy, you ask about the in, inspiration um, that, and, and you, I, I would take that tragic time. Um, uh, in 1963, one of the films we made was called The Five Cities of June. Yes. We made documentaries of presidential trips in 35 millimeter color. But in this case, Bruce Hershenson, a colleague of mine, wrote and directed this, had the idea to, to not just take one city, make JFK's trip to Berlin, the fifth city, and to use four other cities, what was going on in the world at the time. Um, and if, if we made a really very good film and Kennedy in Berlin, speaking to 575,000 people at the Berlin Wall with his personal magnetism and the famous Ich bin I'm Berliner, I am a Berliner speech. Yeah. Um, it, it, we showed it, it in many languages overseas, up everywhere. And President Kennedy saw it. And he, I, Ed Murrow was having his staff meeting with his senior foreign service officers and me as head of the motion pictures, the head of the Voice of America. Um, and I'm sitting there and my deputy walks into the room and hands me a note. And I look at it and I kind of look at Murrow and I get up and walk out and my deputy sits in my chair and I come down which one flight of stairs on 77, 1776 Pennsylvania Avenue. <laughs> my office was on the third floor corner, Murrow's was on the fourth floor. And I walked into my office and my secretary started dialing the phone. And by the time I sat down, and she said, I have Mrs. Lincoln on the phone. And I picked up the phone and President Kennedy's secretary, Evelyn Lincoln, yeah. said, I'll put the president on. And the president came on talking about the five cities of June and saying it's one of the best government documentary I've seen. Where's it being shown? How many languages? You know, uh, all, of, all of the questions, that kind of vigor that he was noted for. And I answered the questions. And uh, it suddenly he, he said, keep up the good work. And he was gone. And I went back to that office and sat with these senior foreign service officers. And Murrow said, what was that about? 
And I said, well, it's the president. Yeah. And he said this and this and that. And you could feel the pride in these uh, men and women who worked there as career people, that the president was paying that kind of attention. Yeah. You know, to, uh, and so soon thereafter, um, just to add, there was another call a couple of weeks later. I had gone to Hollywood on business and I'd been rather uh, late one night. The phone rang at 6.30 in the morning and it was my assistant saying, Mrs. Lincoln just called and I gave her your number. <laughs> so the next thing I know, the phone is ringing and I'm trying to figure if I can go to the bathroom and splash some water on my <laughs> president. The president's and calling. <laughs> and I decide I can't. And I go back and pick up the phone and he says, hello, George. He says, I've been thinking about the five cities of June. I think you ought to nominate it for the Academy Awards. <laughs> yeah. The, the president with all he has to do. Um, <laughs> but after but then the after the assassination that afternoon i had to think about you know what you know with all you have to think about and i asked for a meeting with ed murrow in the next morning and, and we met and i had a proposal for him but first he handed me a letter and i read the letter and it was it said the white house dated five days earlier and it was, dear Ed, I'm so glad you're back from the hospital. Uh, I saw the five cities of June the other night, and I think it's the best government documentary I've seen. Wow. Uh, and, you know, to, to hear that and to be holding that letter uh, that was in his hands just days before, yeah. you know, and I handed the letter back to Murrow and he put up his hand and he said, you made the film, you keep the letter. Um, mm -hmm tells you something about Ed Murrow. And then I told him of my idea. I wanted to make the first feature length film that USIA had ever made at considerable cost, I think $250,000, which was real money in those days. Mm -hmm. And I described it to Murrow and he listened. And then he looked at me and he said, first, make a 10 minute film about Lyndon Johnson he understood what our job was, you know, that we were, our, our job at that moment was to show that the continuity that the president was surviving. And yeah. we shot Lyndon in the Oval Office, beautifully lighted, <clears throat> and then the exterior of the White House, and you hear Gregory, Gregory Peck's voice, the light in the White House window flickered, but it did not go out. And you see Lyndon Johnson, and we tell the story and, and made that film. Um, but, uh, you know, that was just, you know, some of the uh, drama that involved one's life yeah. in that situation. Ah, oh, it is, it is. I, I not only a loss to the nation and the world, but I, I got to keep reminding myself, these were dear friends of yours. So sorry for your loss as well during all of this. It is and, and we kept, and I, and I do tell the story in the book, that in uh, 2005, my wife was on the board, Elizabeth, on, of the Robert Kennedy Memorial, mm. which was created right after his death. Ethel sustained it. We were all involved in it. And I went with Ethel, I went, I went with Elizabeth to the uh, Capitol for the Robert Kennedy Human Rights Awards. And as we met Ethel outside the door, up walked the speaker for that day, uh, and it was Barack Obama. 
Yeah. Um, I'd met as a senator a, a, a bit. And I sat there and he spoke and I'd been to these uh, meetings throughout the years, keeping up the, the, I've been to these meetings through the years, keeping Bobby in our presence. But Barack spoke that day like none other before. Yeah. He took Bobby's words and projected them to the future. And I went back to my office at the Kennedy Center where I was producing the Kennedy Center Honors. <laughs> I wrote him a letter and I said, I think you should run in this year, not in 2012 or 2016. Yeah. And, uh, and eventually he decided to run. And I was, it, it, I, th I felt it part of the lineage of John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy. Who knows, but maybe you can take partial credit for inspiring him to run early. <laughs> and I know your wife was like, well, in the Clinton campaign, that was so that's such a fun part of the book. And I and but the the Kennedy Obama tie is totally there. I was I was there the day waited hours um, in line at American University when Ted and Caroline Kennedy in, endorsed. Uh, I was I was there in the crowd. Um, was that early? Yes. Unbelievable time. Um, and I, we can get to there in, in a minute. Um, but um because you produced his inaugural special at the Lincoln Memorial, all that stuff. But um, if we could, I, I don't want to skip over all the other great <laughs> memories that happened between there. Uh, but thanks. I, I, sure. The Kennedy-Obama connection is very astute. So the, you know, Kennedy sadly is, is assassinated and LBJ comes in. And that that is sort of when we, I guess we're going to have sort of parallel tracks here in, in this interview. We'll try to jump <laughs> back and forth. But um, that is when the Kennedy Center is created as a memorial to JFK. And at the same time, LBJ proposes an American Film Institute, um, which many listeners might not remember was sort of housed in the Kennedy Center. It was a DC thing for a while in the beginning. Um, yeah. So uh, talk about sort of um, getting those ventures off the ground. Um, you know, starting an American Film Institute, it's such a part of our lexicon now, AFI top 100 movies. Everyone knows it now, but um, talk about the very, the very roots of that and the idea that this would be sort of a way to you know, kind of do what your dad did, but on your own in your new Washington world. It kind of married married the two perfectly. It did. Um, President Kennedy initiated the idea of the National Endowment for the Arts, uh, but did not live to see it happen. He appointed the first National Arts Council. And the uh, National Endowment knew they could sponsor symphony orchestras, opera companies, uh, there were obvious things to do, but they didn't know what to do about film. And I was sort of the young guy in Washington connected to film. And so they asked me, and I, you can't give a grant to Warner Brothers was how they framed it. Right, right, right. Uh, and, and I proposed or suggested an American Film Institute. And, uh, and they were considering that. And then when we went one day to the signing of the legislation for the National Endowment for the Arts and Humanities uh, that Lyndon Johnson in the Rose Garden. And he spoke and he mentioned the symphony orchestras and opera companies. None of that ever happened. But mm -hmm. then he surprised us all by saying, we will create an American Film Institute to preserve the great films and to bring and to train young filmmakers. And I was sitting with my father and we didn't dare look at one another. You know, it was, it was such a <laughs> shock. Right. Uh, but, you know, once Lyndon Johnson said, we're going to do it, <laughs> it became real. And It was a thing. <laughs> and, and that was just a, 
an, another opportunity for Greek happiness, for me to yeah. use the fullest use of my powers along lines of excellence. And uh, so it was, a, <clears throat> it was a struggle. It wasn't easy. I thought I could set it up in three years. It took 12. And of course, <laughs> I've continued on the board of AFI ever since. But, uh, and we, we started importantly, the AFI Conservatory mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. And in that first two years, uh, Terrence Malick and David Lynch and Caleb Deschanel and Paul Schrader, there were only 18 in the first year. Yeah. And so many of them are st still prominent today or. Yeah. Oh, not only training through the conservatory and, and American film magazine and all of that, but, um, also talk about real quick the the mission of sort of film preservation. It, it's stunning to read the the actual stats in the book about how many movies prior to I can't remember whatever the date were, were lost. Um, uh, talk about your 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 realization at that moment, like wow, I need to do something now, or or it's going to be lost. I know Scorsese's written letters, you know, around done a lot for it too. Um, but talk about how for you it was like wow, my father and everyone else's history is being lost. I got to save it. Yeah, um, it, it, it became the cornerstone film preservation of the AFI, you know, for the first 20 years. And um, we would rescue films. We had young uh, sleuths who would go out and, and find storerooms and, uh, and studio vaults. And we, we took, we, and then I decided we should collaborate with the Library of Congress for real stability. Um, and we kind of got them pregnant. They did not have yeah. much of a film preservation program. Right. And, just, and I, I said, we would go find the films and bring them to the library. And we made that agreement. And there are now 50,000 uh, restored films in the AFI collection in the Library of Congress. They refer to it as the cornerstone of their film preservation. Ah, it's a, it's such a, such important important work. We wouldn't yeah you know, we wouldn't be able to have all these great remasters and everything that we take for granted pulling up on streaming and things today. You know it might not be there if it wasn't for your your tireless efforts back back then. Mm -hmm. Um. Well, before we move off AFI, one other thing we have to talk about is all the great AFI life achievement ceremonies because I know that sort of inspires to do Kennedy Center honors and all these you know galas later. But like. Talk about putting together those and trying to wrangle all these stars. I guess John Ford was the first one. Then I guess, was it Cagney? I know Orson Welles was a big one too yeah. there in the earlier. What was it like trying to convince people to do it? Or what? Or was it easy because they heard the name John Ford and everyone wanted to, you know, pay their tribute? Uh, you know, if it's, you know, bringing something like that to life is a challenge. And we really write about the adventure of sure. getting, uh, ironically, it was Richard and Nixon agreeing to come to Hollywood for the John Ford right. event that gave it a liftoff. Right. And, um, and but producing them, and also for me, I was kind of had the responsibility of bringing AFI to life and making all these programs work and the budget and all, but writing and producing the Life Achievement Award show, I, uh, I did it for 25 years, <laughs> even after I'd left being director of AFI. But it was a creative uh, jewel for me to have that uh, responsibility, and uh, and you, yeah, we, we, you know, it was always a challenge every year, but a delightful one, and people did want to participate. Yeah, I, it it is just so I, amazing to think 
of all the people. Um, well, it's actually kind of similar to what you had done at the conservatory, getting Fellini and all these people to come in. Um, but yeah. people would, you know, famous people would come and sit in the audience for that. And I love that he defended structure. They were like, oh, is it improvisation? No. Yeah. And, and Fellini is eight and a half, the crazy out of the box. And even he likes structure. So they he take said, that. He said, he said to the students who were, who were all, you know, yeah. it's easier to yeah. improvise. It, it can be helpful yeah. in films. Good yeah. people use it, sure. but it was it was kind of a disease, right? Yeah. At that time, right at the AFI, and Fellini said no. He said, "Improvisate, improvisatore." And Tony Quinn, who was sitting next to him, says, "No, yes, improvisatore." He said, "No, no." He said, "For me, making a film is like for you Americans sending a man to the moon." <laughs> exactly, and right there. Your uh, whole lesson plan, your whole, <laughs> whole thesis of structure uh, being important was solidified. And it kind of reflected in the, you know, as you honored these AFI Life Achievement Awards, you know, um, Orson Welles, the great, probably great rule breaker in American history with Citizen Kane and everything yeah. else. Um, and he, I love how he says to people on all sides, you know, to the good movies, to movies of all kinds. Um yeah. Even he said he learned movies, but you know, by watching John Ford, John Ford, John Ford. Like, uh, you learn the structure, you learn the rules, and occasionally you can break them. I get. I mean, well, I don't know. What do you, What do you think? You've interviewed all these people. Do you think that? Do you think them winning these life achievement awards is is because they they mastered the structure that you speak about with a little risk taking in there? Is it a blend? Oh yeah, there's always risk taking. I mean, a place in the sun, you know, was was risk taking. It was not design the way popular movies are designed about a, uh, the hero is charged and convicted of murdering, you know, uh, drowning. Yeah. His girlfriend, woman friend. Uh, yeah, no, they were great filmmakers and there are different ways to do it. Uh, and, uh, but the, the ones we honored at the AFI were fulfilled our criterion, um, for 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 those whose work in a, uh, has stood the test of time. Yeah, that's the key word, the test of time. Well, yeah. speaking of the test of time, you kind of lent lent that to picking the classes for the Kennedy Center honors each year. And yeah. so, how how do you? It's hard to believe now. You're so so you you've been so associated with it over the years. Um, but um. Take me back to the idea to, to do a Kennedy Center Honors. I guess you had already done at least one of the AFI Life Achievements. We, and said, we, we did an AFI 10th anniversary in the Opera House of the Kennedy Center. Jimmy Carter had just come into office. We had a White House reception, and it was a two-hour special on CBS. And it was great for AFI. And I said to Roger Stevens, no relation, the chairman of the Kennedy Center, when I thanked him the next day, I said, you should have your own event and, and television show. And he said, do you got any ideas? It's <laughs> the way he spoke. And I said, I do. And I said, it's, it's carved in one sentence on the wall of this building, uh, the JFK quotes. And, and he said, what is that? And he says, President Kennedy, I look forward to an America that will not be afraid of grace and beauty that will reward achievement in, this, in, in the arts as we reward achievement in business or statecraft. And that's what the Kennedy Center Honors became. Um, there were a lot of steps to getting there, but <laughs> that's what it became. Uh, you know, I, in the years I did it, which 
from 1978 to 2014, we honored 198 of the most brilliant, intriguing, wonderful artists. Yeah. Um, and you know, at one, once I read this book, I realized why I think it has in part such interest to you that Elizabeth and I have with our Hollywood connections, she was very connected to the East Coast, um, the Kennedy Center honors uh, and politics. Yeah. We, we, we've, spent our, we've spent our lives with some of the most interesting people uh, <laughs> yeah. in the world. And that's really what makes this book, you know, the, the fact that they are part of it. Yeah, it's the it's combining the Hollywood royalty with the Washington royalty, the political angle. It it is, and, and that they all sort of come together at the Kennedy Center honors and are forced to sit there and watch these surprise performers. It all kind of gels in those Kennedy Center honors. Um, I, I love, and, and I like what you're saying too about how it was. Uh, I can't remember which composer was it, Leonard Bernstein. One of them was saying something about, oh, so like Beethoven, you know, popular but not ordinary. You know, you you get you get the people that are, it's the high arts, high arts mixed with the popular arts, and 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 it's a test of time kind of a thing. But uh, the one that you <laughs> that made me laugh how hard it was for you to get Catherine Hepburn. Oh, <laughs> she yeah. was like she was like the white whale. You could she did not want to come do it. Uh, what, how, why do you think she was so hesitant? And why she's like it's too painful. It'll be too painful. And how did you actually get her get her to agree? Well, she just didn't like to do that stuff. You yeah. know, she said I I rarely go out for dinner. You know, <laughs> and and but but, but we it, it sent questionnaires to the artist committee. Yeah, under the finest artists in the country, and every year for Catherine Hepburn would have more names than anybody. And I said to her, you know, what am I, well, actually the story was we'd given up, but then I saw a, a, a program called Alex Cohen's Night of a Hundred Stars 2 on ABC from the Music Hall in New York. Yeah. And who do I see walking? And so I have this conversation with her and I said, I've explained to these people that you just don't do this kind of thing. And then I said, last night, I saw on Alex Cohen's Night of a Hundred Stars 2, I saw you all in black walking across the stage. Yeah. What am I going to say to them now? And then she said, oh, it would just be too painful and too painful. And we kind of had a talk and I thought I was getting somewhere. And she said, well, you can call me Wednesday, but don't get your hopes up. So I called her back on Wednesday and she, and she, and she started with this, it's just going to be too painful. And I, it was like a voice coming from another person. I heard myself saying, well, you know, we hear so much of this uh, Yankee fiber of yours. Why don't you just summon some of that Yankee fiber and say, yes. There was this long pause and she said, all right, yes. And hung down, the, hung up the phone. <laughs> and it worked. And, and she, she ended up and, loving it in the balcony. Oh, was great. Wonderful. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, to me, those you, the those Kennedy Center honors are just all time stuff. Uh, you go in about the you know heart pang tribute to Led Zeppelin. There's been so many amazing amazing ones. Um, and and man, I don't I personally them them saying you know your time is up. We want to give you an award, but someone yeah. You know, that's like breaking up the Chicago Bulls when Jordan was still winning championships. You guys are winning Emmys, and that's my okay. analogy for it. But 
we interviewed David Rubenstein as well. I'm not going to take a side, yada, yada. But I think you should have been able to go as long as you wanted. That's my that's my stance on it. Thank you. <laughs> but um, let's remind our listeners, in addition to the Kennedy Center Honors, really quick, some of the other amazing productions you did around town, like Christmas in Washington at the Building Museum was always a big thing. Talk about how, you know, we've mentioned a lot of Democratic presidents that, you know, you work for. But talk about how even, you know, Reagans and Bushes would 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 love the Kennedy Center Honors and love the Christmas in Washington specials. Yes, I mean, Ronald Reagan was, uh, I, I guess he was born to sit in the box at the Kennedy Center <laughs> Honors yeah. next to Cary Grant. And Art Buckwald had that great joke one year. Uh, it was after uh, Reagan's assassination, uh, the attempt on him, yeah. when Alexander Haig, who was, uh, said, I'm in charge, forgetting that George Bush was vice president, um, and Art Buckwell had this line, Mr. President, just think, if things had been a little different, you could be sitting where Cary Grant is sitting, and Alexander Haig would be sitting where you're sitting. <laughs> yeah, now you can see him, that photo of them laughing out loud at that line. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah and and yeah and first bush george hw and barbara bush you have your meetings with them and the second bush like it it seemed to me that your your specials until he who shall not be named recently i don't even want to mention his name but until for a while the kennedy center honors christmas even watch it seemed like your specials could kind of bring the country together you know a bipartisan you know, i missed that and, and and with george w you know with that rough decision you know the supreme court decision giving right. it to him over a gore, you know, there was a real thought the artists would not come. Mm -hmm. um, and we organized that in a way and the Bushes were wanted to be responsive and were. Uh, but it really did. Every year, the, the people of different persuasions would be together. Um, and I think it did make a difference. Absolutely. And I remember at least with the, with the Clintons, I love the millennium story about the washington yeah. monument with the lights <laughs> so real quick reminder you got to read the book folks to hear all these stories but real quick that what's the great gem about how you, you got the national park service right to change the law be, and yeah. say that it's okay every millennium it's allowed yeah, yeah, no, we had <laughs> we, we, if you remember the the, the the there was that time around 2000 yeah. that they re, refurbished the washington right. Mo monument yeah. and it had these blue steel girders around it yeah. uh, that Robert Graves, wonderful architect, designed. And we wanted to hang fireworks on it and make this thing with a, at, the, at the hour of midnight, uh, this flame shoots up the Lincoln Memorial. We had the great fireworks people organize it. <laughs> but a, a National Park Service, which control, controls the mall, um, was refusing to do it. And I, I knew the head, head of the National Park Service, and he finally called a meeting with all of his lawyers, and they were giving all these reasons, and you can't do it because they have a rule that you can't do anything within 15 feet of the memorial because of this and this and this and that. And they don't want to break the precedent. Mm -hmm. So I finally came back in, to them and with this proposal that we have a rule that you can do this once every millennium you can violate this rule. And it was the breakthrough. Uh, Secretary, Secretary of uh, Interior, Bruce Babbitt, a great yeah. man, uh, uh, approved it. <laughs> <And> <laughs> so we did it. 
Oh, yeah. Quincy Jones <laughs> had a great line with that. Yeah. Quincy says, you really went ghetto on them in there. <laughs> <laughs> That's a genius idea to say every millennium and to work around it. And on and the fact that, I mean, 9-11 happened a year later, maybe they wouldn't have been so lenient on rules after that. But it was yeah. you, you, you fit it in there. Um, well, the, the crowning achievement of your live specials to me, and this will be the last one about the specials, but um, was the the Obama inaugural special at the Lincoln Memorial. Perfect backdrop, freezing weather for rehearsals, I'm sure. I guess it was, was it We Are One, I think it was called. But um, yeah. I remember watching it like it was yesterday. You had everyone from Denzel Washington and Tom Hanks to Springsteen doing The Rising, uh, Garth Brooks singing We Shall Be Free, U2 singing um, City of Blinding Lights, which was the Obama you know, campaign song. But talk about bringing that one together, you know, everyone from John Legend to Beyonce. You you had everybody there really rearranging their schedules to get it all work must have been. Yeah, and we had three weeks to do it. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, it was... Uh, uh, you're just a great adventure, and it's one of those things where you have to say, "Damn the torpedoes!" and <laughs> you're just full steam ahead. And uh, we had a fabulous team, and we worked on it, and and it really, I, I remember Mike Nichols. He watched it. It was a compliment that pleased me most. He, he thought it was so magnificent. And Mike's a tough audience, uh, but it was, uh, and and it. And again, it was an opportunity to, you know, you know that uh, you know, Denzel opening it and all. And here's Abraham Lincoln watching all of this. You know, the, yeah. the person that held the country together, uh, brought it back together after a civil war. And, and Obama, uh, all of it represented. It was all in the text and the subtext of the American values that were uh involved in that moment and of course blinding entertainment pete seeger and uh yeah springsteen and what, what with the wonderful song at the end uh our land is your land my this land, land is, is your land. land yeah 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 i mean you've you've been it you've been on the steps of history at so many moments it's it's really incredible everyone has to to check out the book. And um, I guess I wanted to end by, we talked about you, your relationship with your father and making a filmmaker's journey. And, and even Cary Grant said, ah, oh, I should have let you record my face. <laughs> um, yeah. But you paid such great tribute to your father with your career and your life's work. And I also, I wanted to ha give you a moment to talk about Michael and rest in peace and your other kids and, and how sort of the next generations of Stevens's uh, will, will carry on your torch, even though we know you're not done yet. You even said in the book that well, I'll see what excites me next, but um, yeah, talk about sort of the next generations of Stevens, how proud you are. And I am at work on a very ambitious and interesting film project, but well, are you allowed course... to tell us about it or no? I'm 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 not going to. Okay, <laughs> maybe <laughs> later. Yeah, um, and you refer to my son Michael, yeah. uh, who was just this brilliant, uh, uh, yeah, man. Uh, and and we we came to work together. We became partners. And he, I didn't say it, but on the um, uh, We Are One show, it was Michael who drove it, and he was get he he got Bono. He, he just knew how to do it. And we put together this thing and Michael uh, tragically died of cancer. Uh, and uh, we miss him every day. And my other son, David, daughter, Caroline, and six grandchildren, we've got a lovely group 
and all uh, finding their way in the world. And we'll see how many, if any, end up in show business. Um, <laughs> but um, Caroline and David are involved in elements of it. So, uh, although David's a, 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 a psychologist and scholar who does wonderful work with children. Um, and uh, another thing that I learned from my father, uh, we were working on Giant and we've been editing it for uh, a year and a, you know, a year. And, and, and it was hot in Los Angeles and I was 23 and I was just getting kind of impatient with it. And I said, dad, we've had two previews. This picture is so good. Why don't we just put it out there? And my father looked at me and he said, you know, uh, think about how many man and woman hours are going to be spent watching this picture over the years. Yeah. Three hours and 20 minutes a session. Yeah. He said, don't you think it's better we spend a little more of our time making it as good as it can be? And, you know, that is something that has really guided my life. And I think it's a, such a good thing to offer to people because we're all doing, working on things in whatever profession. And just that idea of devoting that extra time and energy to it to make it as good as it can be. And, uh, and, and that's my thought for the day. <laughs> well, you spoke of, you know, your dad taking a little extra time. So we thank you for taking the extra time uh, here with us today to make this right. And uh, did you apply that to the book too? take a little extra time to get the, the book just right? Like how long did it take? Um, and that was absolutely, it was COVID. It gave me time and yeah. it was just the refinement of the book which I think makes it so readable for you that, you know, a, a draft earlier, it would have been a little tougher going. <laughs> right. And you said there's an audio book version now coming out too? Audio. I recorded the audio and uh, it's now out on Amazon and Spotify and Audible and all those places. Awesome. Well, I highly recommend anyone who loves DC, you know, politics or Hollywood movie making or the intersection of them both um man you've you've lived one one heck heck of a life and i love how you end with uh and we're a dc radio station so folks love the afi silver over in silver spring i love with your final little anecdote at the silver spring watching your grandmother's uh silent comedies what do you call the chapter the the cagney line of your final oh, tap yes. dance my last chapter is called the get of asia get of asia when we were doing the james cagney uh life achievement award show in hollywood Cagney came out, he out of retirement from uh, Massachusetts. And we had dinner one night, just Liz and I and Henry Mancini and his wife and Jimmy Cagney and his wife, Billy. And as J Jimmy was leaving dinner, um, he's five foot six, you know, he stands so straight, gray hair then. And, and he said to me, he says, well, you know, uh, I, I think I'm gonna need a little get of Asia for the show. <laughs> And, and I said, excuse me, get evasion? And he said, that's that little step you do as you're going off the stage so that people remember you. <laughs> this little kind of uh, step and walked out the door of, <laughs> of the Mancini house. So this is, we need to get of Asia here. Yeah, this is the get of Asia. Well, then my get of Asia then is, I can't wait to see what you're working on next, this film project you're talking about then. I will gladly cover that when, when, it, when it comes out. That's okay. my get of Asia. Yeah. <laughs>
Thank you. All right. Hey, no, but in all seriousness, thank this was so much fun getting to talk with you. Everybody, pick it up. My place in the sun. It is unbelievable. Thank you so much for taking the time today. And and thanks to your listeners for their patience and listening to our stories. <laughs> if they listen to all of this, I promise there's way more stories in the book. This is just a very tip of the iceberg. So uh thank you so much. Thank you, Jason. Thanks so much for listening to Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Our theme music is Scott Buckley's Clarion. Remember to give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.